uh, in the very, very early days of the Christian church, um, a letter full of passion, a letter full of love, a letter absolutely focused on the person of Jesus, uh, a letter with a real clarion call simply to walk in the light of the God whom we meet in Jesus Christ. And uh, in these few verses, uh, we've got something that I think speaks right to the heart of what we've been doing at the beginning of our service in baptizing Felix and Matilda. It speaks right to the heart of our faith and our walk with God. It speaks right to the heart of what it is that the Christian church, if you like, has to offer the world uh, other than just the occasional beautiful building and a nice bunch of uh, people and coffee and cake. Um, I don't know whether you've ever had the opportunity to visit uh, an entirely different cultural setting and to view somebody else's way of doing things, if you like, from the outside in. It's a remarkable experience. It can be quite a bamboozling uh, experience, too, if you aren't expecting it. It can be quite confusing. It can be quite odd. A whole bunch of stuff that a whole group of other people think is absolutely obvious and straightforward and what they always do, you're stood there or sat there thinking, I don't think I understand what's going on here. And of course, at the moment we are doing that with somebody else, we recognize and realize that somebody else is likely to be doing that to us. Uh, my father's Hungarian, and I remember as a teenager visiting Hungary, um, and we ended up visiting a, um, a tiny village right out in the Great Plains. I didn't really, don't really know that Hungary has Great Plains, uh, but it has astonishing um, fields and fields and fields of wheat, just occasionally punctuated by fields of bright red poppies and fields of sunflowers. It's an astonishingly beautiful place. And right the way over towards sort of Transylvania and the Romanian border, um, we visited this tiny, tiny village um, and uh, a church that was there. And we were um, welcomed into the house of a family um, who owned a goose farm. Uh, this was uh, making a, 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 a pate. Uh, we'll probably leave the descriptions at that point. So I realized where I was going with that. Um, and um, I, I remember as in my sort of mid-teens being completely sort of blown sideways simply just by the sights uh, and by the sounds and by these incredibly friendly people. Um, we're now talking back in the mid-80s. Um, that part of Hungary was incredibly poor. I don't know what it's like today. Um, it's not a place I've been back to. But it was real subsistence farming for the most part, real hand-to-mouth, very, very, very few resources. But here's the thing. When we turned up at this family's house, and they'd invited us, they were desperate for us to come, they sat us down for a meal. And to my consternation as a teenager, because I didn't know what was going on, they didn't sit down with us. Now, that's common actually in a lot of cultures, but it wasn't a culture I'd grown up with. So the four of us, my mum and dad, me and my brother, we sat around this table and the family, and there were quite a few of them, waited on us and brought us food. And they didn't just bring us some food, they brought us plate after plate after plate. And in fact, we got to the point where it was, it, I, we were in a lot of trouble because we, we didn't feel we could say no to anything that they were giving us, but we were starting to feel really, really ill with the, the huge generosity of these people. And I remember coming away from that thinking, well, Again, you've got to forgive, you know, in my, in my young teens, thinking, well, that's all a bit bizarre, isn't it? Sure, well, why would you invite somebody for dinner and not sit down to eat with them? Because that's my culture. You have somebody for a meal, you sit down with them. It's about round a table. But in their culture, actually, the way in which they honoured us as guests was to serve us. And it, my dad had to explain that to me afterwards. I was going, well, what's going on there? There are things that look odd from the outside that make a huge amount of sense from the inside. And until you're on the inside, until you understand them, we lose their power. And in fact, once it was explained to me, the power of that was huge. The thought that somebody else who'd never met me 
would treat me with that sort of respect and honor and dignity was, I mean, lives with me to this day, many, many years later. Isn't baptism a really odd thing? I mean, you know, Paul, Matilda, and Felix have been sort of manhandled by somebody that they don't know very well. They've had, actually, I didn't make the water as warm as I intended to, but my hand and thought, oh, that's a bit chilly. Really sorry to both of you. Uh, they just had, you know, three little bits of water over their head. They had some oil. I mean, who puts oil on somebody else's head? When you start looking at this from the outside in, it's a really odd thing that we've just done with some really odd words. And if you're somebody for whom this is the first time you've ever seen it, you may be sitting there going, you're not wrong. It's really odd. And even if you've seen it many times before, when you step a little bit outside that cultural bubble and go, well, really? Why would you do that? It's very strange. I simply want to suggest that these few sentences in this letter that John wrote to these Christians in the early church, if you like, are that explanation of something that turns out isn't simply a cultural foible, a little bit of sort of 2,000-year-old history, but is actually, it turns out, a lived-out parable, a visual aid of something that is life-changingly powerful. Something that takes us right to the heart of what we believe it means to be human. Not simply religious, but human. And that what John writes about here unpacks for us the shape of what we've just seen in baptism because what baptism does is unpack for us the shape of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The shape of what it means to have that faith that Sheila was talking about a little bit before. What it means to have that faith that we're praying that Matilda and Felix will grow into as they grow up. What this little passage um, sort of unpacks for us is a gift, an invitation, and a response. A gift that we declare that these two children and that each of us can be given, an invitation to make the most of it, and then a challenge to respond to that gift. And when we get to the end of what we talk about, I want to suggest that actually that order of gift, invitation, and response is the exact mirror opposite of what religion in general does. Okay? This isn't religious in that sense. This is something quite different. Gift, invitation, response. That's what we've just done. That's just what we've acted out. This is what you find that John is talking about. Now, a little word of explanation before we pile into these few sentences that John writes, and that's this. Um, I hope you'll manage to um, pick yourself up if you, like me, have been tripped up by the very uh, gender-specific language in what John wrote. Um, Once he gets past talking about children, he says, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. And just what I want to say to you is, if you are neither father nor young man, That doesn't mean this isn't for you. The culture in which John wrote, it would have been entirely natural to write in a very gender-specific way. But what he's actually writing to is, when he says, um, uh, to you fathers, simply means you older people. And I suddenly realized yesterday that with my son nearly 19, that's me uh, and upwards, okay? So if you're roughly my age and upwards, you're an old man or an old woman, so be it. Um, But he also wants to talk to those of us who are a bit younger, to you young men, to you young women. This is for you. That's what John wants to write. And the place he starts is very simply with a gift. It's the gift of gifts. It's the gift that makes life utterly different. Verse 12, he says, I write to you, dear children, that's all of us, because your sins have been forgiven 
on account of his name. Now, his name we ought to unpack, and it simply means Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus from the very beginning. Verse 1 of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and then he goes on to say, he is Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. This gift of forgiveness is on account of the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean the name Jesus is somehow a magic word like abracadabra. Actually, it simply means on account of who Jesus is, on account of what Jesus has done. This gift of forgiveness is yours. Now, forgiveness is a tricky old thing. If I was to pick somebody at random and walk up to them without um, warning and simply come up to them and say, I forgive you, Nathan. Um, Actually, Nathan could be quite reasonably aggrieved at that point because by saying to you, Nathan, I forgive you, What am I saying about him? Well, I'm saying, you've wronged me. In other words, forgiveness carries with it an accusation, doesn't it? You you can't be forgiven if if there's nothing to be forgiven for. Actually, Nathan has never done anything um, to harm me, just to make that very clear. Um, But actually, if somebody comes up to me and says, Richard, I forgive you, the first step in being forgiven is to say, yeah, I need forgiveness. Otherwise, the whole thing just bounces off, if you like. It can be offered, but to be received, you have to know that it's you. So what is this thing we're being forgiven for? It's the word sin. We hate that word sin. Uh, It's not a very popular modern word. It gets used in advertising. You know, that little sinful, naughty but nice. We sort of put it over there. But if somebody says to you, you sinner, especially if they use that, you sinner, it's a very old world finger wagging. We like to be sort of free of that sort of stuff. If you put it a different way, it's the way I always explain it here. If we talk about it as simply a little word with I, right in the middle of it. We know at a gut level, whether we're religious or not, whether we're people of faith or not, whether we believe in that word sin or not, that actually the world would be a completely transformed place if I and people like me didn't go through life with I at the center of life. Isn't that true? Actually, the biggest thing we try and teach our children, the biggest thing we're trying to learn ourselves, the biggest thing we mess up time and time again is that actually life isn't meant to be lived with I at the center of it. And yet I do. I am most concerned about I. I am most concerned about what I want, what I need, what I experience, what I think. And I do know that in my better moments, I can think about others. I do know that in my better moments, I can sacrifice my I for somebody else. And the Bible simply says, well, that's sin. That we weren't built to put I at the center of the universe because there's only one person who deserves to be at the heart of the universe, and that's the one whose beating heart of love is right at the heart of the universe, the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who in Jesus has come to rescue us. He's the one to put first. And the Bible simply says, that's the essence of sin, when I put I rather than others and the one who made me first. And I do need forgiveness for that. Who is to forgive me? How can I find peace with that? How can I be forgiven? I can try really hard to be better, but I'm just going to trip up again and again and again. And the Bible says that that is all about Jesus, the one who lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. He always lived for others and for his heavenly Father. The one who died a death in our place so we don't have to face it alone. The one who rose to new life so that we can receive a new life now that will take us through even death itself to the life of the world to come. That's the one in whose name we have this gift of forgiveness. And if we are willing to receive it, which of course means admitting we need that help, 
If we're willing to receive it, there's then an invitation to enjoy it. That's what comes up next. I write to you older people because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you younger people because you have overcome the evil one. Two, sort of, if you like, spin-offs. Two things that come along with receiving that gift of forgiveness. One is simply relationship with God. You've known him who is from the beginning. You get to know God as your friend. You get to have a relationship with the one who knows you and loves you. But also you get to defeat evil. We know we're in a battle, don't we? I mean, in that little interview with Sheila, she was able to talk about those darker times of life. And there's not a single person in this room who isn't able to go, yep, me too. We, all of us, walk through dark times. Sometimes things that hit us out of the blue we weren't expecting to do with family, to do with our health, to do with a job, whatever it is, they hit us, and that's a dark time. Sometimes a recurring pattern we simply can't get out of. And the Bible uses this catch-all term to talk about that darkness both uh, as a personal presence of evil, that God has an enemy, not an equal and opposite one, but one who tries to counter his plans, the evil one, but also the experience of evil, of darkness. In other words, the promise here, the invitation is, if you're to receive this gift of forgiveness that's yours in the name of Jesus, then you are invited to enjoy what it is to know God for yourself as your friend and to be on the winning side in the battle against evil. So a gift, an invitation, and then, and only then, a challenge to respond. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting of what they have and do, come not from the Father, but from the world. It basically says, look, if God loves you that way in Jesus, if you are forgiven, if you have a gift of God's friendship and of being on the winning side in this fight against evil, then how are you going to live? It's a basic choice in life. Who are you going to love? Are you going to love yourself? And are you going to love the stuff that is passing away, the stuff that in the end doesn't matter? Or are you going to love God? It's that same question about the I in the middle of sin. Are you going to put I at the center of the universe or are you going to put him, the one who knows you, and loves you. If anyone loves the world, then loving God isn't in them, because that stuff is passing away. But instead, in response to God's love, we're simply to love him back. Now, that's the prayer that we've been praying for Matilda and for Felix, that as they discover, as they grow up, that they are loved that way by God, that they will find themselves able simply to respond, to love him back. Not to love the world in the sense of not to put the world first, not to put the stuff that this world says is important first, but to put God first, the one who puts us first in Jesus. Gift. As we receive the gift, we receive an invitation to know God for ourselves, to be on the winning side in our battle against evil, and a response to love him back. And do you see how utterly different that is from the way that religion works? I know I always bang this drum, but it's so hard to get it out of our systems. What religion says is the exact opposite, that you start with what we say as a response, that you have to start with effort. Right, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to love the world. I'm going to try loving God. And if I do that, then maybe I'll get to know God a little bit. I'll be on the winning side occasionally in my, love, in my life. And then there will be this result at the end of my life, if I've been really good, that maybe God will forgive me. We get it back to front. We've turned it into some celestial, lifelong game show with a set of rules 
a set of tasks, some stuff we have to get through on the way, a huge amount of effort, and a few winners. And God says, no, you're all losers that way. What you need instead is for the one who declares you forgiven at the start, who says you're loved. In Jesus, you're forgiven. You have that gift given to you. And if you respond, if you receive it, then you get to know me as a friend. You get to be on the winning side in the battle against evil. And I get to teach you how to respond in the words you speak, the things you do, and the person that you're becoming in me. That's what we're praying for Felix. That's what we're praying for Matilda. But actually, if you've ever been baptized, that's what was prayed over you. And that's what the gift of God is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus we receive that gift of forgiveness, that he lived and died and rose again so that we could be forgiven, that all that part of our life which is I at the center. And thank you that in receiving that gift, we get to be your friends. We get to experience what it is to be on the winning side in the battle against evil. And we pray, not just for Matilda and for Felix, but for all of us who've been baptized, that as we've received that sign of belonging, that sign of being forgiven, that we would respond with the whole of our lives in living and loving in the way that we have been loved by God.